What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Web3 Music Podcast. After a long holiday break, I'm really excited to get the podcast going again in 2023. So, Happy New Year, and thanks for tuning in. If you haven't listened before, my name is Jake Abel, and I started this podcast because I wanted to get involved and learn more about the intersection of blockchain technology and music. And the best way I found to do that is by talking with people who are really paving their own path in the fascinating niche that is Web3 Music. So, each episode, I interview artists, creators, builders, entrepreneurs, and more about how they're leveraging technology to advance their music career or company. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Neon Ox. Neon Ox is an NFT ticketing company that I think has a really, really great use case for Web3-focused companies that are organizing IRL events. Ticket buyers on the platform use fiat with their debit or credit cards and purchase tickets connected to their phone number, but Web3 natives also have the option to connect their crypto wallet and receive their tickets as NFTs. For Web3 companies, this means that you can use your event tickets for things like token gating and airdrops, and you can track the wallet addresses of people who are actually showing up to your events. Besides that, Neonox has been in the ticketing game for over 20 years, and they provide personal account managers for each client. The platform also has an integrated secondary market to eliminate scams and streamline the process of buying and selling extra tickets. If you want to learn more about Neonox and how they can help improve your ticket selling experience, visit neonox.io and mention this podcast on the Get Started page. You can also reach out to the Web3 Music Podcast on social media, and we will help you schedule a demo of the platform. And with that, let's get into today's episode. Today I'm interviewing Tony Lashley. Tony is a music industry professional and entrepreneur currently building a curated music streaming platform called Marine Snow that he co-founded in 2020. Marine Snow signs exclusive licensing deals with artists so that the music on the platform is available exclusively on Marine Snow for the 90 days of the licensing agreement. Before starting Marine Snow, Tony worked at Spotify in music marketing strategy and operations and then at Frank Ocean's music label, Blonded, as head of marketing and operations. We talk about Marine Snow, the inspiration behind it, and how it operates, as well as defining cultural, historical, and critical significance, Web3 financial models, and giving members and artists ownership, curatorial governance in finding and signing new music, how AI and other technology will affect the music industry, his experience working at Spotify and Blonded, his mentors, including Matt Pincus, the founder of Songs Music Publishing and current CEO and founder of Music, a music business investment company, and much more. I hope you learned something new from today's episode. Here is Tony Lashley. So I wanted to start with a description of Marine Snow, I think the way that I've understood it poking around the app and reading up on it a little bit and then you know, feel free to interject or, you know, correct me after I'm done. But I think that'd be helpful for people listening just to, you know, hear what it's all about. So I described it as a music streaming app with social integrations. The way it works is that Marine Snow signs exclusive licensing deals with artists so that the music you have on the platform is available only on Marine Snow for the 90 days of the licensing agreement. The music on the platform is curated based on Marine Snow's belief that these songs will have long-term value historically, culturally, or critically. For these licensing deals, you pay the artist the equivalent of around 100,000 streams on Spotify, which you have described as about the median lifetime stream count for the median artist on Marine Snow, which I think is around probably $500. If that's... Mm, yeah, that number's not right. It's more like 500,000 streams. It's like 550,000 streams. Uh, okay, a little bit more than that. Okay, cool. So that's what they get for just 90 days on the platform, which is, you know, a huge improvement to a lifetime value on Spotify. The social aspect of the app has a sort of feed where people can share their music or really share anything, as well as a comment thread on each song on the platform. And the goal of that is to create a sense of community on Marine Snow that you really can't get on other DSPs and help foster new connections through music. And then on the app itself, the listening experience is more interactive than pretty much all other DSPs and streaming services and is gamified to an extent. The songs come in capsules, which are gifted to the members once a day, as well as during each new song addition to Marine Snow's catalog. You can also earn fractions of a capsule called a shard by engaging with the platform, by reading song blurbs or listening to new music and as well as other forms of engagement. That's all right. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate description. I don't think I've ever heard it described in such detail, including me. I normally just try to the essence of it so it's great to hear the detail of it 
Okay. All right. Cool. Glad glad I got it. It's been fun poking around on it since since you got me on the beta, which I appreciate. So, yeah, it's cool. As far as the design in terms of like, you know, releasing the music in shards and capsules and like there's no like I can't see all the music you have on the catalog. I sort of have to unlock it as I engage with the platform. I'm curious why you decided to, you know, design design it that way. Yeah, it's a very good question. It's a question that we get a fair amount. I think the reason why, maybe to take a step back, is that my goal is to incentivize specific types of behaviors that I don't think are incentivized in other digital music streaming services. I would say, in particular, I'm trying to incentivize a sense of curiosity and the breadth of someone's consumption and being an omnivore and wanting to try new things constantly. I'm trying to reward the depth of their passion and being an obsessive and really knowing a lot about one thing or caring a lot about one thing. I'm trying to reward active, and when I say I, I mean we, obviously, but trying to reward active participation um, rather than passive participation. I'm trying to reward members making the lives of other members more valuable. Um, and I just view game mechanics as a way, a really powerful way to nudge people to perform behaviors that they wouldn't otherwise perform. I think that's just a psychological perspective that we have and that I think psychologically, a lot of digital music streaming services don't feel good. And that, that's because they're not really rewarding the right behaviors. And so my goal is to reward all those behaviors, but then also have it feel fun, not like like incentivize them through punishment or anything like that, right? But having that be fun and delightful and, and unique. And I think the other thing I w would say is that our goal is to treat digital music as fine art in some ways. And I think in order to do that, you need to have a much more visually rich experience. Because if you were to render songs as just line items in a spreadsheet-like layout, the way that Spotify does it, I think it that partially contributes to the commodification of each song. So we want each song to feel special and to feel unique. And I think the visuals combined with the game mechanics are a really powerful way of doing that, plus the incentives that they reward. Yeah, that makes sense. That sort of ties into your analogy that you've used to describe it before, where Marine Snow is like an art gallery in a sense, where you know the songs are sort of moving through it. They're only there for a limited time and they're there for you know their importance. As far as the curation goes, like, what do you, how do you define historic, critical, or cultural value? And then how do you decide if the music you're licensing for the platform has that long term? Yeah, I would define each as a lot of it is about influence, either past, present, or future influence. I think historical value often means that a work that came prior influenced work that has come today. I think critical influence often means influencing things to come. And I think cultural influence is what influences people today. So that's really the metric that I'm, I'm interested in is songs that influence other musicians and other in influence pop culture and art as a whole. So there are no specific metrics that I think you can use to determine that today, at least. I think there are other metrics and other industries that do an imperfect job, but a better job than metrics in the music industry today of measuring influence. But yeah, that's really what I'm focused on. And I'm interested in measuring and, and defining that influence across genre, geography, and time period. So the phrase that we use is historically, critically, and culturally important to your point, but across genre, geography, and time period. And I think those are some of the areas that have been undervalued. There are certain genres that have been undervalued or are undervalued certain countries where their music has been undervalued because it hasn't been reached a, a wider global audience. Um, and there are certain eras of, of, of music that are undervalued because people have forgotten about their influence. So and that's really how we define that. But all of that is really just a proxy for how what we consider to be good music in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So how, how do people submit music to get, you know, or like apply for music to be licensed on the platform? And then like, what is Marine Snow's current process of deciding whether it's going to, you know, whether you're going to sign a deal for it. Yeah, it's both a, a combination of outbound and inbound. Outbound, it 
it stems from us identifying artists that we want to work with based on just scouring the web and the world and then contacting those artists and then asking them for unreleased demos and then listening to those demos as a team and voting internal on whether we should acquire the song over time those voting mechanisms and voting processes will begin to be a combination of internal and external, which is where some of the, the concepts around curatorial governance come into play. But that's the, the model right now. But increasingly, it is shifting away from it being outbound to it also being inbound, where as we begin to build a little bit of a brand, people are beginning to reach out to us. And that process is easier because there's less convincing uh, an artist or a manager that they should work with us. and half the battle is already won and it's just about making sure that the music is up to the level that we want it to be mm -hmm. so with artists that you have to convince to join the platform what is like the pitch to you know the benefit of being on marine snow yeah i think it's, it's the, the 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 same as joining the zorner gallery or the gagoshan gallery or the pace gallery in the art world which is that like when you are associated with a brand that stands for blue chip, high level art, it bolsters your career in a variety of different ways. And so the pitch is one financial, right? We pay artists up front, So that's a pretty easy sell. Oftentimes and 95% of the time that alone can win an artist over. What we say to them is, Hey, we're going to pay you the equivalent of 500 to 600,000 streams for a 90 day exclusive license. All of your numbers are public, right? This is an industry unlike Netflix or HBO and video streaming services where all the data is up front, right? We can see how many plays that you get as an artist on YouTube. We can see how many plays you get on Spotify. And based on our analysis, we don't think that you are going to get that most of the time over the lifetime of your song, let alone three months, three month window for your song. So that's our pitch to artists on the financial front. And then our pitch is also that we are going to put you in front of a set of music lovers, put you in front of music lovers without dividing their attention across an infinitude of songs. So they are much more likely to pay attention to you. And if you look at the long-term value in your career, a lot of it is driven by people who really care about you the most, right? Those are the people that go to your show. Those are the people that buy your vinyl. Those are the people that buy, buy your merch, right? And so our pitch is that you are going to be in front of the people who care about music the most and as such are the most likely to care about you the most. So yeah, plus like I think a lot of artists are also looking for stamps of approval and cosigns along their journey that they can broadcast to others as markers of legitimacy. And for all of those reasons, it's quite an easy sell to work with artists that we work with. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, they can always, after the 90 days, they can go do what they were going to do with that music anyway. So like almost why not sign this deal? You can find some super fans and hopefully garner some more significant support. It's a stamp of approval. Yeah. It all makes a lot of sense. Do you ever run into like, what, like what issues do you run into with trying to get music onto the platform or convincing artists that, you know, you have a, a good value offering? I think the most common, and, and when I say most common, that belies the fact that it happens very rarely, but just in the order of, of issues, it's the most common. But the most common is that an artist wants to put out a video at the same time, and we do not have video hosting capabilities. And inherently, that means that they want to put it out on YouTube, which kills the exclusivity. So I think that's one of the more common points in, in terms of like challenges. I think oftentimes, or not oftentimes, but occasionally, the money just doesn't work for an artist, right? If we reach out to too big of an artist, that's nothing for, right, a certain sized artist. But we're pretty careful on who we reach out to as to not be offensive in terms of the amount of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you, so are you offering the same amount of money for every song or do you vary it a little bit based on the artist? Right now, the plan is to pay that amount for every single song. And we've done that for over 300 artists. But I think over time, we will begin to vary and increase the amount. I think um, we will see how we do that. But I could see us very easily doing that to reach like the next tier of artists. But there is some notion of fairness that's really important to me. And, and in the early days, what I didn't want was for artists to be like, hey, I got this much, but hey, I got this much. And, and want artists to feel undervalued if they were all at relatively 
similar points in their careers. And it also makes it operationally efficient where we don't negotiate, right? So it's just a deal that we think is really fair. We've iterated on it and whittled it down over and over again to a point where we think it's really fair. It's also really easy to read. We've tried to write it in as plain English as possible. It's a really short contract. It's like designed very in a very visually pleasing manner. And so, yeah, what that means is that we think the deal is a super like just one and it's up to the artist to figure that out, but we're not negotiating on it, which saves us the hassle of having to have 300 back and forth on this amount, this term in the deal. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that saves a lot of time. Are they, I guess they're all 90 days. How did you decide on that time frame? It's pretty, I wouldn't say arbitrary, but it's pretty open to change in some ways. I think the idea was that the half-life of a song is about a season. You know, if you look at music media, oftentimes there's the song of the summer. So yeah, that felt like the sweet spot in terms of capturing a big portion of the value when people are really paying attention while also being as not greedy as possible. So yeah, that 90 days, but that could even change over time. But again, for operational efficiency, it's it's easy to just standardize the terms and for fairness. I think every artist understands that every other artist is getting the same deal. And I think that actually makes each individual artist much more likely to sign that deal because they don't feel like they're getting screwed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was reading some of your other interviews talking about all this stuff. In your July interview with Music Week, you talked about the the sort of long-term financial model with Marine Snow. You said you hope that eventually it can be a pay-what-you-want subscription with a floor price and that early and sizable subscribers will be rewarded financially over time. Have you started implementing any of that? And how did you come up with that ideal model? We have implemented subscriptions in the past and we generated a little bit of revenue, but we've actually turned that off because the subscriptions were just traditional subscriptions where subscribers were not investors. We came up with it. There's like a, a piece from Joey De Bruin and Sari Azu, two people I really respect in the Web3 token world. Some of the people I respect the most. And I think Anir, I can't remember Anir's last name, but Nir and Joey wrote a piece called Why the New York Times Should Be Tokenized a year and a half ago. And I had already kind of been thinking about subscriptions and tokens because I was really interested in how you could replicate the success of existing business models, which subscription is a really powerful one in the music industry. It's very easy, but I was interested in what you could do to enable ownership with that subscription. So that their ideas kind of congealed with some ideas that I had been thinking about at the time. I also was a pretty early member of Friends with Benefits in January of 2021. And Trevor is one of our investors and somebody I look up to a lot. And that was a lifetime membership denominated in FWB tokens. And I saw how hard it was to, in the early days, this was almost two years ago, before more NFT or Web3 and crypto adoption, how hard it was to just sign up once you were let in. And I was really interested in, in models that inverted the friends with benefits model where the subscription was denominated in fiat and then you got tokens on the back end rather than the subscription being denominated in fiat and then um, in tokens and then the the price of it fluctuating in fiat so that's really where the idea came from i think pay what you want has always been really interesting to me as well both because i think it lets in young people who are really important for the the vitality of a music service where we want to have important music, but it also allows us to capture maybe the willingness to pay of older folks who accrued a little bit more money. And I think in economics, you know, I'm an economics major, in addition to being an English major, like price discrimination is really important. And the more you can drill down, down on exactly what any one person is willing to pay rather than being generic in your pricing is oftentimes the more value you're able to capture. So. I was also really interested in in how Marine Snow members could be owners. I had actually been thinking about that pre-tokens, to be honest, and thinking about like doing some funding on Republic, even though we have VC funding, in order to open up our investor base to be a little bit more egalitarian, because I think there's a lot of business positives from that, in addition to it being right ethically. So I think when I read that article, it was just the 
crystallization of a lot of things that I had been thinking about prior. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You'd mentioned in that interview that I brought up before that you were waiting for, you'd been interested in Web3 for a while, but we're waiting for Marine Snow to have this, you said, intentional, nuanced, and unique perspective on the space before entering Web3 as a company. Is that what you were just describing, sort of a summary of that perspective? Yeah, that is a good summary. I think I was also really interested in, um, I would say there are four pillars of the strategy. The first is giving our members ownership through subscription as investment. The second is giving artists ownership via the payment model, right? If you look at Spotify's history, Spotify did a really good job of granting the labels equity and a really poor job of granting artists equity. And so I was really interested in how you could drill down directly to artists to give de facto equity. And that's also where I was really interested in tokens even before, or the idea of ownership even before tokens. I'm also really interested in curatorial, curatorial governance. And to me, a key part of curatorial governance is all of the ecosystem stakeholders having skin in the game. And so I was really interested in ownership also for that reason, both for artists and members, so that everybody was incentivized to see the long-term success of Marine Snow, because that's how I think you get works that are long-term valuable. And then I was also interested in ideas of digital scarcity and digital identity, which I think are very linked to NFTs to me, but I didn't want to just drink the Kool-Aid and do what everybody else was doing from an NFT perspective. So I think that's the summary of us being a little bit differentiated and a little bit nuanced. So yeah, but also it's important to note that I'm very much when I think about Marine Snow, it's product first. And I, I saw that a lot of companies in the space at the time were not, were like community first or Twitter discourse first. And that was just not the way that I wanted to build the company in part because I think every community is mediated by the tools in which they converse. And so I was much more interested in building those tools to build the right community. And yeah, I think now I'm starting to see other companies kind of be much more product first in the Web3 world. Like Farcaster is a really good example. I think when I saw what Farcaster was doing, it really, I finally felt like I, there was some kindred spirits. And I'm not, was... I'm not familiar with Farcaster. What do they, what do they do? Farcaster is like a new version of Web3 Twitter, let's say, but it, it's a very clean product and it really is very easy to sign up and they're not selling it to people with jargon around the technology. They're selling it to people based on the experience and the product experience and the value the product will add to their lives. So yeah, I'm just, I just want to build something that people love and people want to use and that adds value to their lives repeatedly and over the long term. And I think you do that through products, through building things. And then I, you can layer incentives on top of what you've built, but you have to build something first, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. So, so how does that model work with like subscribers and artists as owners, you know, as I subscribe to the product or release music with you guys? And I earn these tokens, like where, where does the long-term value funnel back to me in an ideal, you know, trajectory for Marine Snow? Yeah. The idea is that let's say you're paying $10 a month for Marine Snow and the value of the token is $1 in month one. The idea is that you would get 10 tokens. And then in month two, if the value of the token rose to $1.66, let's say you would get six tokens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So you, be, you accrue tokens the more you pay upfront per month and the more the longer you've been a subscriber. Right. And then the idea is that those tokens allow you say in the governance of the platform. Right. So the, the longer you've been a subscriber and the more you've been paying is the more you get to govern what we acquire next, as well as the token hopefully rising in time as others join and that you are participating in the long term economics of the platform. I think the easiest metaphor that I would give is that it would be like if every time you bought Nike shoes, they gave you an equivalent amount of Nike shares. And then with those Nike shares, you had an investment. And with those Nike shares, you could vote on propositions around governance, just the same way that you can with Nike shares today. Yeah, that's really cool. So it, the plan with it is eventually to open up the curation mechanism from, you know, the team that you have doing it right now to sign these licensing agreements and sort of you know take more input from the community on what artists and songs to sign yeah that's exactly right hopefully you saw in the curatorial governance that I, piece that i don't think any one 
channel or one system of, of, of inputs when it comes to the valuing of cultural objects is completely perfect. And what I'm re really interested in is building systems of synthesis that allow you to synthesize the best of critical opinion and the best of the wisdom of the crowd. And so Marine Snow will never be pure populism where whatever people vote on is just what, what it's acquired. What I'm really interested in are systems of checks and balances which is how American democracy works, for example, right? If you look at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is really just experts in American law, right? And they're there to balance like the forces of populism. They're also on lifetime appointments so that they can think really long-term about the world and not just be swayed by whatever two-year window that they would have to be on if they were on much shorter time horizons. And so I'm really interested in how you build systems of governance that have general critics who are maybe on slightly longer appointments. Also how you have specific experts or specific critics, right? If we were to go to Turkey and find a Turkey, Turkish drum and bass song, I think what I'm really interested in is asking music critics who listen to a variety of music in depth, what they think of the song. But then I'm also really interested in somebody who listens to Turkish drum and bass. What do they think of the song, right? And then I'm also really interested in what does the general member base think of the song, right? And I think you need all three of those things to figure out the works that are most likely to be valuable in the long term. Yeah, definitely. It's about balancing all those different inputs and and figuring out how to weigh them in terms of like, you know, which one do you give more importance to into how you're curating the platform? Have you thought about how you'll weigh those different inputs or that's something i mean it's also i'm sure something that you'll you know experiment with a little bit over time until you find the right balance i have i'm i'm still figuring out the specifics of those weights but yes there is a, there definitely is a plan for those weights today mm -hmm. is that something you can talk about now or no i think i would rather talk about it through doing it you'll find that my philosophy in general is i'd, I'd rather just do the thing than talk about the things mm -hmm. Uh, which is maybe a little bit paradoxical to the way that others in the space move, but it's just the way that I feel comfortable. I'm also curious to hear like what difficulties you're running into just in general, like what, what are the challenges with Arena Snow right now, maybe in terms of like getting people engaged on the app or finding new music or artists or, you know, what, what are the challenges you think you have right now that are, you know, you need to overcome to help put Marine Snow on the right track or keep it on the right track? Yeah, I think a really interesting one that we're trying to think through now, and we're not the only folks in the space to be thinking about this. And it's something, again, I think I'm lucky and with some of my prior experiences that I've been thinking about for a while, but is the role of the App Store in the distribution of tokens for subscriptions, as well as the role of the App Store for you to sell NFTs, right? Like the Apple cut of 30% really kind of screws the model to some degree. Damn, they take so if you're selling anything through the app, they take a 30% cut. Yeah, that's just it. So that's how it works for like, you know, games where you can spend fiat on like their the game token as well. Yep. Yeah. That's just the in-app in-app purchase fee. Um, uh -huh. and 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 when I worked at Spotify, it was a huge point of contention. Every big company that has an app at some point like really runs up against Apple. Right now, there's a lawsuit or an anti- trust filing in the EU with Spotify and Epic Games against Apple for that very reason. Because not only does Apple take that 30%, but in the past, and they've just loosened up these rules a little bit, but you couldn't even tell people to go anywhere else to, to buy the thing, right? What, what could happen is that maybe you pay 30% if the transaction goes through Apple, but you just tell people to, to buy it elsewhere. And so you're banned from having any language to that nature in the app store. Your app wouldn't get approved. And it's happening right now, by the way. I could send you some articles with Spotify and audiobooks because Spotify is trying to roll out the sale of audiobooks akin to Audible. And, and there's a pretty convoluted flow that they've created in order to get around the 30%. And that's not really the best user experience. So I think we're just trying to think through what does that flow look like in order maybe to get people to buy on their computers and then display them on their phones. But that's really less than stellar or do you open it up in a browser on their phones so yeah i think that's a really big challenge for anybody building on mobile i also think it's a really interesting opportunity and in that we're to some degree we're betting on those issues being solved in the next year or so which i think they will they, granted they've been bubbling for a really long time i left Spotify three and a half years ago and 
even since then, these issues were on the table. So I think that's a really big one. I I, I have a, a theory that Web3, NFTs, tokens, all of them are going, are going to rise significantly in adoption when they match where people spend most of their time from a computing device perspective, which is their phones. And I think that's a huge obstacle to the industry as a whole. I think what you're seeing amongst other things, but partially is that like many tech companies in COVID or 2020, there were a lot of behaviors that correlated with people being inside. Clubhouse is another one, right? Any digital company to some degree, their stock price rose in June, July, 2020, because consumption rose dramatically. And a lot of that consumption was happening with your fingers on a keyboard because you were inside. But now post major COVID, COVID's not over, but post like lockdown, people are returning to normalcy and real life and, and their computational device usage is much more skewing back towards their phones. But that doesn't align with how a lot of these products and services, particularly in Web3, that wall spun up in 2020, 2021. 2020 were constructed. So yeah, I think that's a really, really big challenge. I think that's a really big one for the industry as a whole, but like I said, it's a real, also an opportunity. And then I think even when it's solved, it, 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 it's what will make the difference in terms of mass consumer adoption. So just like things like Pokemon Go, for example, all of the, all of the biggest, most interesting technological trends, be real or all, all really on your phone you know, so and I don't think there's any going back from that. So I think that that's definitely a challenge. You know, there are little challenges that come up every day, you know, starting a company is not easy by any means, but I, I tend to view all of the challenges as opportunities and points of excitement, you know, what makes things hard is also what makes things rewarding. And I actually think some of that ethos is in Marine Snow to some degree in that I'm not a believer in completely reducing friction to zero. I think friction is actually um, the spice of life in some ways, and that the right amount of right amounts of friction can be rewarding rather than frustrating. So yeah, that is just my philosophy in life, and I think it's it's also kind of true in the product. Is that friction is also what causes very leap forward experiences, which I think in the long run make people much happier than being spoon fed. Yeah, definitely. It's you know if you're running into challenges that you overcome, it's a much more you know positive sense of accomplishment or just like sense of joy with like discovering new music on the platform than if it was just sort of sitting there right for the you know sitting there for the taking that's um, right. just to, to interject really quickly that's the number one key principle of gaming right like in gaming you don't get to the last level in the first 10 seconds right you have to work your way there and experience hardships and challenges to get there so the journey is the reward oftentimes in life and yeah any challenge is an opportunity and an exciting point for me mm -hmm. yeah I've, I've heard i don't remember where i heard this quote but i think it might have been the tim ferris podcast it was one it was one of the i don't remember who it was either way they were talking about all the challenges with web3 and how the ui is clunky and yeah it's not on mobile which is a point i haven't heard brought up that much but makes a lot of sense and you know, every challenge that you run into in terms of, you know, increasing adoption and increasing ease of use and, and figuring out ways to, you know, get people more engaged. Every challenge is an opportunity for some engineer or some company builder to figure out the solution and make money off of it and make an interesting product off of it. So I definitely understand what you're saying there. Yeah, every, every, every challenge is an opportunity for someone to fix. I also wanted to ask, going back into the NFT release idea from Marine Snow. That isn't something you've implemented yet, right? And when did that idea come into play? Like, was that one of the thoughts at the beginning of starting the company? And, and how did you, how and when did you decide that you would want to release NFTs towards the end of the licensing agreement of these songs? Um, I think a lot of the ideas were proto Web3 ideas. You can look at other founders in the space and they will tell you that some of the ideas in the music web three world overall were just inspired by some things that we were saying even before web three mass adoption so the idea of digital scarcity has always been something that we've talked about since over two years i would say and that just came to me because it was the opposite of the overabundance of music on spotify right and competing on quality over quantity was always something that i was really interested in so mechanisms 
that codified digital scarcity were always super interesting to me. Like I was always really interested in potentially selling downloads, but a limited number of downloads, for example. So yeah, I, I think a lot of that spirit is intrinsic to Marine Snow and, and NFTs are just an application of some of these ideas that have been around for a long time. Yeah, definitely. It's it's just another tool to, you know, make some of these ideas come to life. That's right. When when did you start Marine Snow? When did the idea for it happen? And, you know, I guess you sort of touched on the inspiration behind it, but I'm curious to have you dive into some more detail there. Yeah. Marine Snow started February 2020, right before the pandemic. We incorporated the day the economy crashed, March 13th, 2020. So, yeah, I remember. Which is a Friday, Friday the 13th. Yeah, I was flying to Miami for spring break of my senior year of college that day. Crazy. And right when we got there, they shut everything down. Miami Music Week was canceled. Our cruise to the Bahamas was canceled. Yeah. We could hardly leave the hotel. We still had a decent time, but I remember the day that the world shut down. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's such a wild time. And it feels like both forever ago and yesterday. So yeah, Marine Snow started in 2020. The ideas from Marine Snow actually have been thought about since... The business, the first business plan from Marine Snow was written at the end of 2018. And then I didn't implement it for another year and a half. But the 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 first and one of the key kernels of Marine Snow was that Spotify is the basic cable of music. It's like basic cable in three ways. It's like basic cable in that the content bundle is commodified. No matter who your basic cable provider is, you get the exact same channels. It's like basic cable in that it's increasingly built for a lean back audience. People talk about cable news being repetitive, but they don't talk necessarily about why it's repetitive. And the reason why is because they know you're not really paying attention and it's on in the background. So they have to say the same thing over and over again. And I think very similarly, Spotify is increasingly designed to soundtrack other moments in your life, whether that's just for working out, studying, cooking, the music is designed to be secondary to the primary activity. And then the third way that I think it's like cable is that I think the audience segmentation is really basic. If you look at the history of basic cable, originally it was the same three channels that everybody got, ABC, NBC, CBS, but it was delivering those channels to people outside of the range of antenna. And so people in the mountains who where the mountains were blocking antenna signal or people in West Texas, for example, that were just outside of the range of, of any power. But then they very quickly realized over time that they could fit more bandwidth into the spectrum that they could fit in the airwaves. Uh, and they started to create new channels as a means of getting people who already had the three channels to buy cable. And But when they were creating those channels, they were creating those channels in a really elementary way where they were saying things like, people like news, what if we gave them news 24-7? That's CNN. People like sports, what if we give them sports 24-7? That's ESPN. There are Black people, that's BET. There are women. That's Lifetime. If you look at Lifetime's first slogan, Lifetime's first slogan was cable for women, which is just, <laughs> and I think Spotify kind of talks down to its audience in a very similar way in that Spotify has a very rigid playlist hierarchy where all playlists fall into one of three buckets. There are mood-based playlists, happy songs, sad songs, song secure your anxiety. There are moment-based playlists. So songs for your barbecue, songs for the shower, songs to sing along to in the car. And then there are genre-based playlists, rap caviar, viva latino, funk, which is the new big genre playlist. These are, you're saying playlists that Spotify curates themselves. Yeah, that's right. The Spotify owned and operated playlists all fall into one of these three buckets, minus pollen and some other things that I helped work on. And I just don't think that's the way that somebody who really listens to music and really cares about music. That's not how they consume music. And so the original idea from Reed Snow, even back then in 2020, was if Spotify is the basic cable of music, what does HBO look like? That focuses on connoisseur, consumer, that focuses on a lean-in experience and focuses on premium content that cuts across content categories. Like Just like how HBO has comedies, dramas, sci-fi, documentaries, but they're all at a certain level. I was really interested in how you could have historically, critically, and culturally important music across genre, geography, and time period, but have it all be at a certain level. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that's a great analogy. Like, I, uh, I frequently am talking about shows on Spotify. I'm like, or not shows, shows on HBO. I'm like, well, it's on HBO. It's probably fucking good. Like they know cool. what the hell they know what the hell they're doing with producing TV shows. So if it's on there uh, and I'm interested in it, I'm probably gonna like it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's a great 
parallel to the streaming of music. Mm -hmm. And that was really the initial idea. But then I was always really interested in, and what we called it at the time was HBO 3.0, where the community was as important as the content. And there was a feedback loop between the community and the content. It never really made sense to me that discussion around HBO shows happened on Twitter. Like I felt like that should just happen on HBO in some ways. And the social value of content is such an important part of the value overall, excuse me, that I felt like those shows could be really powerful conduits for people meeting each other because they're already powerful conduits in the real world for people to relate to each other. So yeah, that was the original idea for Marine stuff. Yeah, that's, that's a cool idea. I don't really see, haven't really seen that before. I guess there are some web three companies that are starting to think more about curation, but yeah, I think that's interesting. I thought your perspectives on Spotify that you were giving during that refraction event that we met at were also really interesting in terms of like their scaling model and, and business offering of, you know, trying to basically have everything. And the goal is to get to a billion members so that they can actually, you know, make money and, and offer that as a legitimate product. In your time at Spotify, do you think, like, what do you think you learned about the music industry that probably you wouldn't have been able to learn anywhere else? Good question. I think I understand rights pretty well and the importance of rights. Part of the model of Marine Snow is that when an artist signs exclusives, they're, they're signing rights, right? Like we have rights, which is a huge difference from other Web3 platforms, right? Like when we sign a 90 day license, it's like we're a label that we own the rights for 90 days and then we give it back. And what, what that allows us to do is a lot of interesting things that I don't think other companies have woken up to yet, namely around the, the sub-licensing of music and the further distribution. So like all Marine Snow songs can be found on TikTok, for example, because we have the rights to that. So on Marine Snow's official TikTok account. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, like if you wanted to make your own TikTok, you could take a snippet of a Marine Snow song and make it a TikTok. Oh, uh, okay. Because we've, we've sub-licensed and distributed the music that we own the rights to, to TikTok. Mm -hmm. uh, what that means- I got you. So yeah. then hope, you know, I guess is the goal with that, that like, maybe there are some people who find some songs through TikTok that are on Marine Snow, but they're like, fuck, I want to listen to this elsewhere. Oh, I have to go on Marine Snow for it. That's exactly right. I mm -hmm. think we, have, we, 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 that's exactly right. And I, what I would say is what I learned from Spotify more than anything else is to meet consumers where they are. And so Marine Snow is an exclusive model, which can be inherently tricky to get somebody to come over and pay attention. So what the goal is, is, is to meet people where they are and take them by the hand and then lead them into Marine Snow. And that means meeting them on TikTok, on Snapchat, on Instagram, and all of the places that people spend their time digitally and almost like Trojan horse them into getting a little bit of a preview of Marine Snow songs and then want to have them listen to those songs in full, to your point. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you do any other sub-licensing other than to those social media platforms? No, but we could if we wanted to. Like we've had a lot of conversations internally about sublicensing the music for syncs. Mm -hmm. And we've definitely had conversations with music supervisors already. We just haven't really like worked out what those deals would look like. But yeah, just like how you could discover a Marine Snow song on somebody's Instagram story, you could also discover it if it was on like industry or euphoria or something like that. And if we could time that right so that we like debut the song the day that the the episode were to come out or something like that again that's a really powerful vehicle for customer acquisition so and it's just fun you know what i mean like my goal would be to have these interesting avant-garde songs in places that you might not expect them on the internet so i'm not saying that we're going to do this but i think it would be hilarious for example if we had somebody like charlie d'amelio dancing to a song that it doesn't make sense to dance to you know what i mean and just like the most esoteric ambient electronic music. So yeah, I think we just need to meet people where they are in the digital world and then take them by the hand and lead them into the walled garden that is Marine Snow. Yeah, that's cool. That's really interesting. I'm also curious to hear about your time with with Blonded, Frank Ocean's label. And so you you were the you were working in marketing and operations. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that entail besides like planning and executing marketing strategies for the songs released on the label? Yeah, the reality is that Wanted is small enough where I essentially co-manage Frank with one other person. And really my job, because that job title actually changed. I was initially 
when I when I was going through the process head of strategy and operations. And really, I, what I think Frank wanted was somebody thinking about the medium to long term of his music business to be a compliment to my friend Dan, who was thinking about the short term and the immediate execution when it came to the music business, in part because he had left his previous manager at the time. And that's normally what a big manager does compared to like a day-to-day -day manager. So he just wanted both of those skill sets. And he's very savvy and smart and realized that he pays a lot of money in commission and that he didn't really have to do that to get people who were young and hungry and smart, and more importantly, dedicated to him full-time. Because if you have a manager, they might manage three other people or four other people. So yeah, it was a really good experience. I learned a tremendous amount from Frank. I'm nothing but, but grateful towards him for giving me that opportunity when I was 26 years old. And yeah, it also taught me a lot about, I think when I was at Spotify, I learned everything about like once a song is done, after the marketing promotion distribution all of those wonderful things but with working with frank and directly for an artist you learn about everything that happens before the song is done whether that's the mix engineer the mastering engineer the producer the number of scrapped melodies the number of scrapped lyrics the creative directors the graphic designers all of those folks you don't really get exposure to if you're on like a more corporate side and particularly if you're on a more like tech side of the music industry so i think it was a really good compliment to my spotify experience and that it just opened my eyes to who some of the best graphic designers were in the world and who some of the best mix engineers are. So yeah, that was really my my time there. It was also cool in that Frank had been working on Homer, his luxury brand, for a really long time. And I, I Homer debuted, can't even remember, end of last year, beginning of this year. But it's been in the it would have been in the works for three plus years. So when I even when I was there, it was crazy just to see how much detail and attention to detail was required to execute. A luxury brand at a really high level and i think it also taught me a lot about luxury and lu the intersection of luxury and music which to some degree i think is pretty relevant to marine snow because i think anybody paying for a second music streaming subscription service is inherently buying a luxury so it, it taught me a lot about like the brand and and the brand positioning in order to be luxury and i, I think in a lot of ways i'm really interested in like digital luxury to some degree yeah i can see the parallels to marine snow there i'm sure that was some great experience but with with seeing both sides like before the song and after the song have you had any other ideas for like how artists can utilize web3 technology like one thing you mentioned is how many you know melodies or beats or like you know maybe even finished songs were scrapped like i feel like that's sort of an easy model for someone with a back catalog of unreleased music to have an alternative way to put it out exclusively have you thought about or just had any other ideas with how artists can utilize Web3 after seeing sort of both aspects of, of song releases? I think it depends on what their goals are. I also think I learned from that world that I would say artists care about three things um, in a multivariable equation. And the weighting of those variables depends on the given artist. But I would argue that every artist cares about reach and touching as many people as they can, resonance, touching people in a deep way so that they really care about them and they're really passionate about them, but then also revenue, right? And making money, right? And that's the, the trifecta that every artist is trying to balance. They want as many people in the world to hear something that they've made, but they also want the people that have heard it to really care about it and not just like just discard it quickly. And then they also just want to make money. So yeah, I think if you want to optimize for reach, you shouldn't use Web3, to be honest. I think like the web two infrastructure was very much built for reach when it came to media distribution. I think if you're interested in revenue and resonance, you should maybe think about web three, but it's important to understand that you want to think about those things in the long term, right? I think if I were to, you know, I can see the 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 matrix in my head, but it's like a three by two matrix where you have reach, revenue, and resonance, and then you have on one axis, and then you have long term and short term on or short-term and long-term on another axis. And I would personally leverage Web3 if you are interested in short and long-term revenue um, and short-term resonance. I don't think Web3 as it is today, which is where we hopefully can play. I don't think it's built for long-term resonance in a lot of ways. Like speculation culture is the antithesis of like deep resonance in some ways. So. 
Yeah, I think it, like there's money to be made for sure, but understand that if if done incorrectly, you're you're gaining revenue at the expense of some of those other variables, which are like resonance, or maybe you're resonating with an audience that you may or may not want to resonate with, which are like people who are in it for speculative reasons or in it for technological reasons. And I think the people you want to res resonate with are people who are in it for music reasons because you're a musician, right? So I think in general, if I were advising an artist today, I would definitely tell them to be like thinking about it, but definitely don't just be catering to the echo chamber of Web3 Twitter. I think any artist who does that is setting themselves up for potential hurt um, because Web3 Twitter is going to move on to like the next sexy thing. To some, to be very blunt about it, you're already starting to see it happen with AI, and you want people who are in it for the music because those are the people that are going to be around for the longest time around. Yeah, definitely. I think thinking about it in terms of that matrix is a really good way of describing it. Um, sort of. I mean, with that, I also think it, Web three can just be a tool to hone in on maybe short term resonance and you know as a alternative revenue stream while still doing the other stuff. Like I yeah, think yeah. it's interesting. Like you know, every everyone I've talked to is saying, you know, if you're an artist getting into Web3, don't only focus on Web3. Like you still need to do all the other stuff to promote your music and try to do shows and engage your fans in other ways that, you know, they're already interacting with. But yeah, Web3 can be a tool for some of those things that you said, short term resonance, alternative revenue streams, I think is a great is a great use for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, th I think that's really well said. But I think um, there are tools out there that other artists should also be leveraging, right, to achieve, like you should be looking at the full suite of technologies at your disposal, not just Web3, it's just a technology at the end of the day. And different technologies can help you achieve different things. And there are some technologies, like I'm not saying that you do this, but just as an example, like from my understanding, part of the reason why a lot of K-pop groups have gotten so big is because a lot of them have chatbot services where it it feels very much like you're talking to the artist directly interesting uh, i hadn't heard of that so they like sort of set up like an ai based on their bingo uh, based on you know their personality and and bingo. their chatting patterns and, and i think you have to realize like what is the job to be done which is like a framework from the business world for a lot of content and and cultural objects and a lot of that job to be done is to feel less alone. And so I would just think about that if I were an artist, how do you make people feel less alone if that's what you care about? So I think there's technology, technological ways of doing that. And I think there are things that don't scale that you can do to make people feel less alone. So yeah, I think web three, what it's funny, the technology is really important, but I would argue what people more than anything else are in Web3 for is the community of other people that are interested in it, right? Yeah, 100%. People, you know, get in for a variety of reasons, but they usually stick around because of how supportive the community is. Oh, so, and that is almost divorced from the technology itself. Like you can be in the Web3 world and be in Web3 Twitter and, and barely open MetaMask, you know what I mean? So if you're just having those conversations, and it's interesting that the Web3 world exists on Web2 platforms in a lot of ways. And I guess my point there is that there's a lot to be learned from previous technologies and what they have done. So, yeah, but I would just be thinking about technology. I would be thinking from a first principles perspective, if I were an artist, of what you're trying to achieve. And that is both an, from an individual perspective, as well as like, what do people need? And then figuring out the intersection of those two things and then figuring out what technologies allow you to do that either more deeply or reaching more people. Yeah, that's really interesting. Have you thought about AI in terms of all this stuff? I'm sure you have, like like with all these AI, you know, Midjourney, ChatGPT, Dolly, there's also like creative AIs for music that can, you know, sort of thread together a bunch of stems. I'm curious on what your thoughts on how these different, those technologies will affect music going forward. Yeah, I think maybe I will speak as just my music industry practitioner and observer perspective rather than for Marine Snow right now. But yeah, I, I'm a little bit bearish on certain applications like AI constructed songs. I think, again, so much of what makes cultural objects valuable is feeling like you're connected to another human. And so the human parts of songs will just become more important over time in the same way that as digital music rose in consumption, the live music experience is what 
gain value. People wanted to be around other people who cared about what they cared about as they began to care about music more. So yeah, I'm, I think, for example, tools that that allow you to conjure up a sample really easily, like, which I think is like Splice's COSO tool or something like that. I can't remember what it's called. But if I wanted to be like, give me a 90s, give me a 90s kick drum in the style of the Prodigy with a little bit more like, I don't know, low end or that like is a little bit more abrasive. I think you could probably, that is probably where um, AI is going to be really valuable. It's not going to be in putting the song together from scratch. It's about like getting the elements of songs really quickly, either by sourcing them, finding them really quickly, or by creating new versions really quickly, which are very related. So I'm very interested in that. I also think that like Oh, that that K-pop style, being able to communicate directly with the artists or having it feel like you are and blurring the line between what's real and what's like AI is definitely going to happen. I think in general, if you look at trends, global trends, particularly in the US, and I think a lot of people are just isolated and lonely, right? And people use digital devices to feel less alone. And so the, the services that allow people to feel less alone quickly are probably the ones that are going to win. So yeah, I could see your ability to like text an artist and have it feel like meaningful in a way that it doesn't now with them, maybe even like sharing selfies that are not necessarily fully real. That's like where I think things are going. Like synthetic media is, is the word that a lot of people use where it blurs the line between what's real and what's fake. And I don't think people really care. It's exciting and scary. Yeah. Yeah, but and then I think I think when that happens, there will be a pendulum swing towards artists who don't do that to some degree, and where it is still superhuman in the same way that there's commercial music versus like indie music today, right? I think commercial music is really where I see a lot of the opportunity and like pop, high pop, because a lot of that treads on artifice already, and and artifice is maybe not like an, a kind interpretation. It, it, treads on a lot of like fantastical elements. And it's almost like 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 realistic fantasy, which I, can, I know there's a word for in like genre classification, but I can't remember. But fantasy, that's just one degree away from reality. Mm -hmm. Kind of like Harry Potter, you know? So when like the platform nine and three quarters is a really important metaphor for bridging the fantastical and the real, right? And it made you feel like it, it's just an extension of your own world to some degree. So I think the the technologies that are like platform nine and three quarters to some degree that bridge or blur the lines between the real and the fantastical are the ones that are, are going to win. But I don't think like people are gonna want songs from bots, if I had to guess. It's going to be humans using bots as like a, a storefront in some ways, if that makes sense, rather than like, although I could see like to some degree a little bit but like if it, if it is going to be like humanoid avatars i think it's going to be like hyper fantastical in some ways and there's yeah. no semblance of reality i think it's either going to be very like there's going to be very high verisimilitude in terms of it resembling reality or very low and the middle is is not where it is i don't think the middle is that promising mm -hmm. yeah it's about blurring the lines or you know, putting on a fantastical show. There are some like digital avatars that are already doing that. So oh, yeah, I see what you mean there. Yeah, um, that's why that's what made me revise that is because like things like Hatsune Miku have been around for like 20 years in music in terms of like a Vocaloid. So yeah, and there are already like VTubers and virtual YouTubers who are like put on motion capture suits and completely different characters. But I think that stuff is just going to be pushed out to the extremes. And then it's about like the hyper-realistic verisimilitude that is really going to take off. Hyper-realistic verisimilitude. <laughs> it's, a good, yeah. it's a good quote right there. Um, yeah. I thought that was really interesting what you said about like sort of using an AI as like a tool for sampling, sort of like a mid-journey of, of sound. You know, mm -hmm. give me this drum kit and this style. And then it's about like how you can collaborate with that technology. I think that could be really interesting. I hadn't really thought of that before. Yeah. Um, I think going back into sampling, I, I also wanted to ask you about the H index, which you mm -hmm. have mentioned. You mentioned when at that refraction event we were at, you talked about that in 
an interview you had with Refraction as well as in your curatorial governance piece. So the H-Index, I guess, for listeners who don't know what it is, is the H-Index assigns value to research papers in academia based on how many papers cite the original paper and then how many papers cite those papers. And it sort builds out sort of a branching tree of influence. I think sampling is a pretty decent analogy to how that could work in music, although it's not a perfect analogy, but like how many songs sampled or remixed this song and then how many songs sampled or remixed that song. I'm curious how else you've thought about how that index translates into cultural value and and music more specifically. Yeah, I think a lot of it is about mapping and it's a lot of like first party data and like assigning influences and assigning weights to what people think um, have influenced other works. Like, I think it's very much almost like Wikipedia. Like, I think that could be open source to some degree where um, somebody could say Playboy Cardi influenced Yeet, right? Like Yeet, if you listen to Yeet, he would act, he does actually does not name Playboy Cardi as an influence. Um, he names Young Thug and Future as his two biggest influences. But I think a lot of people would argue that to some degree, Yeet is influenced by Cardi. And again, that's where like curatorial governance becomes really important is how do you, what is like John Caramonica, the New York Times music critic say in terms of Cardi's influence on Yeet, but then also what does like a large mass of people say, like the subreddit, the Yeet subreddit, right? Or something like that. And so I think it, it a lot of it is about creating the data rather than than trying to look at like pre-existing data points like Yeet has never sampled cardi you know what i mean um uh, i actually i think they might have used one beat that there actually was the same or very similar but it's also about the network map of like the producers like Yeet and cardi had both both worked with filthy as a producer right um so yeah it's, i think it's like the equivalent of wikipedia in some ways and just having the right conversations between the right people yeah that that makes sense. It's an interesting it's an interesting analogy and like sort of thought on the uh, sphere of influence of different artists and songs, which I think is just interesting to think about. Um, I've got a couple more questions before we're wrapping up here. I know we have just a little bit more time left. One of them is a question that I learned from one of my professors in school. He's like, ask this question to people. It's it's usually good in an interview or some or you know just to get some some interesting thoughts out of them um and i'll ask it to you about your experience in the music industry um does anyone stick out in your work experience as being really great to work with or really inspiring or a great mentor and what made them stick out yeah my my answer to that is matt Pinkett, who i think is the smartest person in the music industry and i went to grad school purely with the hope of meeting and getting mentorship from him, which I've been very lucky to do. Um, when I left Frank World and, and I was in grad school, even during my first part of Frank World, but I emailed him. First of all, I wrote like two out of my three applications um, to grad school, mentioned his name, and then I got in and then I went really because he went where I went for grad school. And then I hit him up and then he didn't respond. And then I hit him up again and then he responded. And this was in December 2019, I've known him for three years now. So Matt, for those who don't know, is the 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 founder of Songs Publishing. I think Songs was the publishing company that best sat at the intersection of like taste making or tasteful and um, commercially successful. They signed The Weeknd, Diplo, Lord, DJ Mustard, XXX, Tentacion, and other artists to publishing deals. And yeah, Matt was also, and, and Matt sold that business for a lot of money. I'll let everybody Google how much money and so that I don't like to broadcast his pockets. Uh, and he was at the forefront of like catalog sales in publishing, like all of the catalog sales that you're seeing now and last year matt was doing that five years ago um he sold in 2017 so matt has like a really genius brain when it comes to music he was the bassist in a very like cult classic band called judge which is a new york punk band that for a while and i think still might had the highest selling record on discogs of all time uh, so yeah matt is like a musician has like a really good music ear is is firmly of the music business also he worked at emi before starting songs but then it has like a really keen business mind like one of the sharpest business minds that i've 
scene. And yeah, is just like also like a super sharp finance brain in a way that I'm not, to be honest. He can tell you about like commercial paper and shit like that that I know nothing about. But he's super thoughtful. He also he also has an incredible eye for talent, not just musical talent, but like executive talent. So the two people who were his right and left hand at songs, and he made both of their careers were Carrie Ann Marshall and Ron Perry. Ron Perry is now the head of Columbia Records, signed Old Town Road, the most successful song of all time in streaming. Um, and Ron Perry is like pretty well known as like one of the best label heads in terms of what he signed um, at Columbia. And then Carrie Ann Marshall is the co-CEO of Warner Chapel, which is one of the three biggest publishing companies. So um, he and he, he started working with Ron Perry when he was 24 and Ron Perry's 40 now. So something like that, 24, 25. Um, so yeah, he is also one of the most influential people in music, but he's so understated that you would never really know. So yeah, I really wanted, he's somebody I've looked up to for six, seven, more, eight, nine years, uh, maybe even 10. And yeah, he's definitely the person I, I, I would call the closest thing. I mean, he is a mentor of mine, but he's also just like, a person I relate to very deeply, like we can have conversations and I forget that he's 20 years older than me, you know, like the way that we're able to make jokes and, and laugh and take the piss, as the Brits would say, you know, <laughs> it's also really fun to me. So, yeah. And he's also shown me that you don't have to resemble other models of success. He's ultra successful, probably one of the wealthiest people in music, period, or at least of the past 20 years. Uh, but he very much does it his way and it like rarely talks in public so yeah he's just himself and, and very comfortable with himself and it's a self that i happen to respect a lot so that's awesome sounds like a really great mentor that was uh it's a great answer i also just want to like i had other mentors at various points in my career like the ceo of global touring at live nation and jerry barrett was a mentor of mine in college when I worked in management consulting, and even now I have a mentor named Jim Lowry, who's the first black person to ever work in management consulting. So I've been lucky in a lot of ways. Even people that I worked with at Spotify, people like Marion Dykus, who's now the CMO of Netflix, who was my boss at Spotify, I have definitely learned a tremendous amount from. So yeah, I think mentorship comes in all shapes and sizes. And sizes. And I've been had mentorship from my peers too, you know, like my friend Sonny, who now works for Matt, I think is super smart and one of the smartest people that I know, also kind of at the intersection of music and business. So yeah, I have my friend Abby, who's to work at Cobalt. You know, I have a good good crew of of people who just are thought provokers in a way that I really appreciate. That's great. That's awesome. That's 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 cool to hear. Um before we wrap up here, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you would like to speak on? Not, not really. I, I tend to talk, not talk that much. So you've been talking for an hour and a half. Like I've, I've run out of things to say. So yeah, um, I mean, we 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 got to every point that I wanted to ask. So this has been a really really great conversation. I I really appreciate your time, Tony. Likewise, of course. And the next time I'm back home in DC, I will hit you and, and we'll hang out in person. Yeah, cool. Please do. All right. Awesome. Enjoy the rest of the day. All right, man. Yeah, you too. Great talking to you. Take care. See ya. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check the links in the show notes to find and support Tony and Marine Snow. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Web3 Music Pod to keep up with new episodes and find clips from each interview. And be sure to tune in next week for an interview with the independent producer and musician Pete Rango.